Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. This is Marcus Peter. I'm filling in for Al Cresta as Al is away on business right now. We have an enlightening lineup. We're going to be talking about the place of Catholic education, Catholic schools in general, in the formation of our young as we raise them to be virtuous individuals who contribute to society and contribute to the growth and overall flourishing of society. And then after that, we'll be talking with Greg Lukianov. He, he is one of the, the nation's foremost attorneys when it comes to First Amendment rights. But over and above that, he is a brilliant thinker when it comes to present culture and how it stands against the notion of the freedom of speech. So he presents a thoughtful work in critiquing it, and then he presents a solution for it. And then in the second hour of today's program, we'll be talking about how the church calls us to be fishers of men and what that means with Jeff Kassab. We'll be talking with Dr. Regis Martin of the Franciscan University of Steubenville about what makes marriage work. And finally, we'll be talking about St. Francis de Sales and his contribution to the church, love for a loveless age. I want to draw from the wisdom of St. Francis de Sales here. In 1609, St. Francis de Sales published a work called The Introduction to the Devout Life. And it's a series of letters that he wrote to a spiritual daughter of his whom we know to be Philothea. Now, whether that's her real name is besides the point because Philothea means the girl. It's the feminine version of the lover of God. So he writes this and he presents it to all of us in a kind of generic direction of our growth in spiritual life. And he's known as the Dr. Caritatis. He is known as the doctor of love. And this is why. He tells us, you aim at the devout life, dear child, because as a Christian, you know that such devotion is acceptable to God's divine majesty. And then he goes on to talk about how the problem with our spiritual life is that from the get-go, we ought to develop right habits and good, virtuous patterns. Because if we don't come into moral rectitude from the get-go, then bad habits can form and stay then become harder to change. We're going to ponder more of this throughout the next two hours, but St. Francis de Sales, pray for us. For now, let's take a look at the headlines. Thank you, Marcus, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 24th. It's the Feast of St. Francis de Sales. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Former President Trump has held off Nikki Haley to win the New Hampshire GOP primary. Despite the loss, Haley vowed to stay in the race and is hoping to score a win in her home state of South Carolina next month. In the Democratic race, President Biden won New Hampshire's primary as a write-in candidate. A survey is giving insight to Generation Z's views on religion. A recent survey from the Public Religion Research Institute found that Generation Z adults are more likely to identify as religiously unaffiliated than older generations, with the exception of millennials. 
The survey also found that Generation Z Republicans, including adults and teenagers, attend church more often and say religion is more important to them than Generation Z Democrats or Independents. Ford is announcing a recall of nearly 2 million Explorer SUVs. The recall is for Explorers from the 2011 to 2019 model years. The recall is related to a piece of trim on the vehicle that could detach and become an airborne hazard for other drivers, although there have been no reports of accidents or injuries. And a California woman is accused of stealing thousands of dollars worth of trendy Stanley stainless steel cups. Police just outside of Sacramento said they received a call last week about a woman walking out of the store with a cart full of the cups without paying. Employees told the officers she refused to stop and stuffed the stolen merchandise into her car. Police eventually caught up to the 23-year-old suspect and found 65 of the cups worth $2,500 in the car. Videos have gone viral this month showing long lines and frenzied crowds of people trying to get their hands on the limited edition versions of the cups. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. For those of you who don't know me, I wear many hats here at Ave Maria Radio. I'm the director of marketing. I'm also the host of Unveiling the Covenants, which is a weekly program dedicated to exploring the, the covenant love of God the Father from sacred scripture. So check out the work that we're doing here at Ave Maria Radio. In 2008... Then Pope Benedict XVI issued a letter to the faithful of the diocese and city of Rome on what he called as the urgent task of educating young people. The Second Vatican Council saw this as a dire need and published the document Gravissimum Educationis, or the gravity of education, the, the weight of education. To talk with us more about this is Kevin Murphy, and the reason for this is next week we commemorate Catholic Schools Week. Kevin Murphy joins us from the Cardinal Newman Society, and he is the Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Cardinal Newman Society, and you can find out more about their work at cardinalnewmansociety.org, as one word. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So, next week, we go through yet another annual celebration of Catholic Schools Week. And I, the, the fact of the matter is, these weeks can sometimes come and go, and we can take for granted the place that a true Catholic education ethos has in the formation of the souls of, of the young. And frankly, you would probably be one of the first to admit that we, we're in a position of crisis here when it comes to Catholic education. So, shed some light on what's going on. Yeah, Marcus, um, beautifully said. Uh, that's one of the things, the letter, you know, we just celebrated the anniversary of the writing of the letter from Pope Benedict the uh, He He wrote the letter on January 21, and so we're just three days out from that. This is the 16th anniversary of that letter, but what was fascinating about the letter is that he called it an urgent task. Mm-hmm of educating young people, and he even used a phrase he coined inside the document where he said he called it an educational emergency. Mm-hmm. Now, for parents, for grandparents, um, and even for students, why would Pope Benedict use such language as an educational emergency, number one? And number two, that was 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about what has transpired in our culture 
in the last 16 years. And if it was an educational emergency there, then I don't even know the proper phraseology for what it is now. Right. We've probably gone from emergency to potential catastrophe. And now, to be sure, this language of urgency in Pope Benedict XVI's writings is not unique. And uh, like you you would know this well. Uh, He's always been concerned about the wrongful formation of the intellects of particularly the faithful. We think about the homily that he delivered just prior to the election of the new pope, so after the death of John Paul II, where he talked talks about the dictatorship of relativism. This was in April of 2005. And then in September of 2006, he delivers his, what what I believe to be one of his most magnificent speeches, the Regensburg Address. And again, he's highlighting the urgency of our need to return to objective truth and objective goodness and objective morality as the only means of forming the human person if we're going to right the ship of the culture. So is that what you guys are seeing in the Cardinal Newman Society as well? Absolutely. And and the thing that, you know, using the phrase, the urgency or the educational emergency, um, you know, these, as you mentioned, Catholic Schools Week is coming up starting on Sunday. And as a person who sat in the pew and heard people talk about Catholic Schools Week and, and quote, celebrating Catholic schools, I think it's all good and well. But there has to be that sense of emergency. There has mm. to be a sense that if, if we don't take a look and really soberly assess Catholic schools and, and not just gloss over them with this kind of idea of celebrating, if we don't really soberly assess them and take a look at them um, and really operate with a sense of urgency, then I think we're going to be fooling ourselves, number one. And number two, I think the outcome, as you say, the formation of the human person is ultimately going to be harmed. Right. So, Kevin, I want to zoom into exactly this. What is the emergency of, especially when it comes to Catholic education at the K-12 through level? What, what's the lack of the urgency? What are we not seeing? Yeah, I don't think we're seeing the rapid decline of Catholic schools. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to the 1960s, which was the high water mark for Catholic schools. There were 13,000 Catholic K-12 schools. Mm-hmm. There were 5.2 million students. Today, we have 54% less, less Catholic schools. That, that's under 5,900 Catholic schools, number one. And then number two, the, the, the souls that are inside those schools, we have 70% less students. So we went from 5.2 million students to 1.6. Now, you know, Marcus, you, you uh, as you mentioned at the top of this program, you wear many hats. One mm-hmm. of them is the marketing hat mm-hmm. for Ave Maria Radio, right? So let's look at it like in terms of market share. If you think the Catholic schools, which at one time if had, had, you know, 13,000 Catholic schools, 5.2 million students, at that time, there was only 178 million people in the United States. Mm. And so the Catholic enrollment represented about 2.9% of the overall population. Now, fast forward to today, where we only have 1.6 million students and under 5,900 Catholic schools. But what's happened to the population 
I mean, we've gone from 178 million people in the United States to about 333 million. And in Catholic school enrollment, therefore, the market share has gone from 2.9 to 0.005 of the total population. And and think about this. It's a massive statistical decline. Oh, it's massive. And and you you think about that. This is despite Catholics comprising, I mean, most research says Catholics comprise 20% of the overall U.S. population. And, 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 and look at it like a business. If I gave you a business and I said, hey, we got 13,000 retail locations, you know, we, we have 5.2 million customers, and then I come back in, you know, a certain amount of time, and now we have 1.6 million customers and 5,900 locations. And, and you look at that, if, if we'd have simply maintained market share, mm-hmm. Marcus, from, from what it was to what it, what it could be today, if we just stayed even, we didn't grow and we didn't recede. We just stayed even at 2.9%. We would have 9.5 million students in Catholic schools, and instead we have 1.6. So just, again, from the marketing perspective then, just talking about some of the contributing factors, you know, we would call this a SWOT analysis, right? Talking about some of the yeah. contributing <laughs> factors, <laughs> pardon me, I, I know we're speaking no, particular jargon. In your opinion, are some of the weaknesses and threats that have led to this massive decline in not just market share, but also by virtue of uh, bad market share, uh, poor yield in terms of uh, investment and returns, in, in, in terms of ad spend. So all of these things come into consideration when we're thinking about the Catholic population and why they don't send their children into Catholic education. So there's a, there's a, a whole host of things, but let's start with... No brand, no brand in this country can survive by having such discrepancy between one location and another. Mm. Just no brand can survive offering that kind of discrepancy. And I, I always say, think about it. Let's let's talk about something people can identify with. Chain restaurants. Let's look at Starbucks. Yeah, let's there you look go. At Starbucks. Right. Um, if you go to a, I just got back from Washington D.C. and I and I stopped at the Starbucks in the airport, which is the one place people always mess things up, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the, the the retail outlets aren't like the same. Everything was the exact same. I mean, it was just it's astonishing that they can create such a a, a brand experience no matter where you are for a Starbucks, but yet we. We are guarding the soul of a student, and we can't keep things consistent from one location to the next. And mm-hmm. all you have to do to encounter this is drive to a couple Catholic schools in your area and just notice the difference That's right. um, from one to the next. So that discrepancy is number one. And then, Marcus, the second thing I, I really want to think about is I call this the Catholic supply chain. Mm-hmm. If you start with, um, and I think it was Teresa uh, had mentioned this morning, if you start with sacramental marriages mm-hmm. and you just progress, um, you know, sacramental marriages are down nearly 80% over the same time period the Catholic schools have experienced their decline. Yeah. The number of births, we have the lowest U.S. birth rate ever recorded, and Catholic women are now indistinguishable from other right. uh, subgroups of women. And then you have... 63% less baptisms, I believe it is. Then you have 
as I said, 70% less elementary school students, and you have 70% less high school students. And then you get to the colleges. And Marcus, if you, if you talk about the Catholic supply chain, this is the one area where the numbers go up. But think about it. They go up because they're going to so-called Catholic schools, Catholic universities, I mm-hmm. should say, who bear the name Catholic. That's right. But a person could go onto that campus and almost run into nothing that is Catholic about right, that. Right. And, and, and most of the time, when I take calls from young people deeply discouraged about what they encountered, they're at a Catholic university. Yeah. And they go there, and then they find things like, you know, trans shows or different kinds of programs that really totally obliterate, obliterate the faith. They invite speakers that are scandalous speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, their curriculum and their readings, the, the things that they're reading are, are, uh, are opposed to the faith on a constant basis. So there's this barrage. And so it's interesting, and, and, and to culminate all of this Catholic supply chain, the one figure that really stuck out to me was the number of people who are Catholic adults who no longer identify as Catholic. Yeah. And that the number nuns, yeah. over the, has gone from 3.5 million to 30.8 million, which is an 800% increase. So the result of what we're talking about, lack of good Catholic education, is rearing its ugly head at the end. And in the face of this, we, we truly do have a problem with mediocre catechesis and faith formation. So th- there really is a lot we could flesh out. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. I, I, I hope that you know there are future opportunities for us to flesh this out even more. Kevin Murphy, Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Cardinal Newman Society. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this strange beatitude mean? Well, Father Victor Feltz points out that George Bailey, in It's a Wonderful Life, embodies this beatitude. He has to sacrifice his bucketless items and his dreams in order to save the building and loan company of Bedford Falls. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that he's truly the richest man in town. The Beatitudes challenge our understanding of happiness both as individuals and as a society. They're paradoxical, and they upend our priorities. We don't need anyone to tell us that good fortune, money, and success do often make us happy. But we wouldn't have thought that the road to riches in God's kingdom is paved with meekness. It doesn't mean denying your gifts, but it does challenge us to allow others to have the spotlight and to approach them with gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Nothing illustrates the powerful bond between man and wife intended by God, the creator of marriage, than these words from Matthew's gospel. A true marriage is a sacramental bond and is therefore indissoluble. The Catholic Catechism, however, realistically acknowledges that the presence of evil can severely strain this bond. Marital union has always been threatened by discord, a spirit of domination, jealousy, infidelity, and conflicts that can escalate into hatred and separation. The original communion of Adam and Eve was ruptured by their sin of disobedience. Their relations were distorted by mutual recrimination, says the Catechism, and brought about the pain of childbirth and the toil of work. 
Without God's help, a man and woman cannot achieve the union of their lives for which God created them in the beginning. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Since the year 2000, Greg Lukianoff's Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression has tracked instances of free speech violations on U.S. college campuses. The numbers back up what many of us suspect, that since 2014, there's been a massive uptick in campaigns to investigate or even punish scholars for quote-unquote unacceptable views, resulting in almost 200 firings and hundreds of other sanctions. Now, this is completely antithetical to what we once believed was the purpose of higher education, to expose one to exposing views and opinions and to be able to form one's intellect rightly. Thankfully, there is a solution. We talk with Greg Lukianov. Greg is the co-author of the cancelling of the American mind, cancel culture, undermines trust and threatens us all. But there is a solution. He's also the author of The Coddling of the American Mind, and he is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, also called FIRE for short, F-I-R-E, and one of the country's most passionate defenders of free expression. Greg has written on free speech issues in the nation's top, t- top newspapers, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and he was the executive producer of documentaries such as Can We Take a Joke? You may follow him on Twitter at G. Lukianoff, that's with a K, L-U-K-I-A-N-O-F-F, and learn more about his work at thefire.org. Greg, how are you doing? 
I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, the honor's all ours. I, I want to also mention this for the benefit of our listeners. Colin Style of Politico magazine names Greg one of the nation's preeminent First Amendment lawyers and most vivid chroniclers of American fragility, and rightfully so. You, you've done quite a bit in trying to tackle what's happening in the culture, especially as it pertains to direct violations to American constitutional freedoms, especially First Amendment rights. So I want to ask you, what prompted the penning of the cancelling of the American mind? Well, um, you know, I've been, I went to law school to do First Amendment law, um, and this has always been a passion of mine. I'm a first-generation American, I'm a former student journalist, and, and that's a pretty normal MO for someone going into First Amendment law. Um, and been working in this field for, since 2001. Um, uh, FIRE was actually founded in uh, 1999, and uh, so we're celebrating our 25th uh, year this year, and I've, I've been with FIRE for my entire career my entire you know, post-law school career, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in 2014, something very dramatic happened, and it wasn't subtle at all. And my first attempt to sort of get into the shift that I was seeing was a project I worked on with Jonathan Haidt, talking about how we were seeing all these students coming in with these ideas about trauma and medicalized excuses, frankly, for for censorship. Mm-hmm. And we made the point that not only will this be a disaster for academic freedom, it's going to be a disaster for mental health. Right. And so that was coddling in the American mind, which um, we started working on in 2014. The original article came out in 2015, but the book came out in 2018. But what we left on the table was just the fact that there had been this huge uptick in professors and students getting in trouble at a scale that is just, you know, historically, literally unprecedented, right. um, which we, I'm publishing something on my Substack explaining that, that, that this is just a fact um, that should be out later tonight. Um, so realizing that um, we were still, still hearing people like who were respected claim that cancel culture was a hoax. Mm. or that it didn't even happen. Wow. I felt like I was one of the few people in the country who had access to all the data that made the point that that's insane and you should never take someone who says that seriously again. Mm-hmm. So having taught high school for five years, Greg, I, I, I have to tell you that the sheer delusion of uh, two generations, largely mine and the one after me, uh, of how cancel culture is being perceived, it's being called uh, accountability culture, as if it's a oh, virtuous good. thing. And, and, and it's under the guise of virtue signaling. You know, how dare you utilize the violence of your speech, whether or not you have the yeah. right is besides the point, but utilize the violence of your speech to bring about trauma to these people who've experienced generational, and, and, and it just goes on and on. The the oppression narrative, which you highlight in your book, actually, the op- oppressor-oppressed op- narrative is, is just hammed up ad nauseum. And in the face of this, here you are standing up for these age-old, traditional, objective rights of the human person that are enshrined in the American Constitution. So, you know, just tell us a little more about all of that. Yeah, um, it, we talk about this, and one of the, one of the most uh, fun and interesting things about the book, um, because I, I'm sure that some of your listeners don't need any convincing that cancel culture <laughs> is real and serious, um, but they might actually have some fun with the way we explain cancel culture as being just a tactic, more or less, of ways to win arguments without actually winning arguments. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that is a way of, to like, I'm not going to refute you, I'm going to make you scared of disagreeing with me ever again. I'm going to make you scared about talking about this topic ever again. 
or I'm going to make sure that you don't have your job anymore, so you you know you, you don't have your platform anymore. Right, and you called it the and, perfect rhetorical fortress. Yes, and we talk about how we have layer upon layer, and that's what we t- we mean by the uh, perfect rhetorical fortress because we we take on right and left mm-hmm. in the book, um, but definitely we make no bones about the fact that more cancel culture comes from the left, mm-hmm. um, and we talk about the um, the layer upon layer of ways to dismiss people, and I've recently dubbed this fascio casting, which I'm still working on if I like that that term, but the idea of sort of like casting a spell that someone is right-wing or fascist mm. has become so incredibly overused that it's not just used against people who are conservative, it's used against practically anybody you want to discredit and want people to, to not listen to. Um, so much so that there's a well-known First Amendment scholar, you know, who is now accusing the um, ACLU and the New York Times of being quote unquote neo Confederates because apparently dubbing them <laughs> fascist and right wing is, is not sufficient um, of, right, of, right. of an insult. Although she definitely uses the word fascist as well, um, and that's that shows you how much concept creep there's been on this. Because you know once you, once you realize this tactic works to get people you know afraid like uh, to discredit people, mm-hmm. um, you can use it on practically anybody. And that's just step one of the perfect rhetorical portrait. That's right. We that's point right. out how. Everybody, every single argument, every person, every institution can be dismissed, you know, even just a couple of steps into the PRF. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time you're done with it, you know, you have, a, you have a rhetorical technology that lets you listen to absolutely no one um, you disagree with. That's right. So uh, I, I really want to do a deep dive into it. And you do a great job of going through it in Chapter 6 of the first part. But um, be- before we do that, you you mentioned that you also talk about the kind of rhetoric that seems to come from people who lean right in society. And uh, mm-hmm. the name you coined for it in the book is the efficient rhetorical fortress. So just make that distinction for us, and then let's talk about some of the tactics used in the perfect rhetorical fortress. Yeah, in the efficient rhetorical fortress, we call it efficient because it's basically just four steps. You can label someone uh, liberal you know, uh, or, or woke, um, even if they aren't. I mean, I've, I've seen some, you know, very well-established, very consistent conservatives be labeled woke in the recent right, past right. Uh, when someone doesn't want to listen to them. Um, so it's the same. It's, a, it's the mere reflection of the labeling someone um, uh, fascist or right-wing. Um, and then you get get kind of a pass in listening to um, journalists, experts, uh, and if you're MAGA, anyone who dislikes or disagrees with Trump. Um, and that's the fourth step that not everybody applies, but I've definitely seen you know, some ferocious um, uh, protection, you know, mm-hmm. how people will, if, if you don't like Trump, you basically don't count anymore. That's right. And so we have about three chapters on cancel culture from the right. And we, by the way, took some slack from that by, by a conservative actual friend of mine. And I'm like, listen, uh, about, about it being mindless both ciderism. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> we have 20 chapters on threats from the left. We have three <laughs> on threats from the right. I'm not going to pretend there aren't threats from the right. And, and I'm a consistent defender of freedom of speech, and I always mm. will be. So I will call it out. But I'm not saying these things are proportional. Yep. Yep. And, and that's, that's the genuine, honest take on this on this issue right now because what's happening is with the complete denigration of an appeal to in this case the documentary constitution of the united states of america uh, in the interest of especially emotivism what we are now what we're now finding is anything that becomes an affront to individual expressionism is seen as some kind of a fascist 
uh, almost an attack of terror. It, it's trauma-inducing. And so they go through the steps of what you highlight in the perfect rhetorical fortress. And by the end of it, the hope is the person who spoke needs to be reduced to a, a bubbling mess, a, a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> of, of apologies for existence. that's right yeah that's right lest we, 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 lest they lose their lives in their career yeah we have a lot of fun with the um uh with uh, the, the what we call the demographic funnel but essentially uh, we actually break it down mm -hmm. um and say kind of like you know people get dismissed for being uh, white people get dismissed mm. for being non-black. Right. People get dismissed for being straight. People get dismissed for being cisgendered, and we follow the rabbit hole all the way down. And when you you know <laughs> when you use your intersectional lens, you're That's down right. to about 0.8 of the population that uh, of the entire country. But then there's a nice little twist at the end. None of that matters because <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> because it actually turns out that if you are a non-white uh, transgender person. And you have the wrong opinion. You're even worse. That's you right. have uh, that. That that means you have internalized transphobia. You have internalized misogyny. Actually, my 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 much beloved uh, co-author Ricky Schlott gets accused of having internalized misogyny all the time. <laughs> Um, you know, you have all these tactics to dismiss you and you, you're out for and, and they'll get you with even greater hatred because because you, you're, you're then also seen as a betrayer. So even just by level, you know, step number five or six of the Perpetual Fortress, you've literally eliminated every human being who on the planet walks the face of the earth. That's right. Anyone who's got even a half a mind to be able to think rationally has already been excluded by, you know, like you said, step five or six. I, I, I try to put myself through the steps and I realize gosh i mean by what like three or four i'm doomed as soon as it comes to what's a speaker sex well uh, straight male i'm i'm you know i'm married happily and i'm catholic so obviously a heterosexual you gotta, you gotta work on that exactly so i'm doomed you know like at that point nothing i say matches i have no right to speak in the public sphere now yeah and well and the thing the thing that's interesting about the perpetual fortress is the optionality they can always let you get through to step eight or whatever mm -hmm. um but but they uh and be feel very magnanimous about you, you know not eliminating you just by calling you a right winger which is the most common tactic or any of the demographic stuff um but they'll they can still use all these other tactics including the tactic of last uh, the two tactics of last resort emotional blackmail right. um which is when people show up in your office crying um because someone published something for goodness sake which mm -hmm. happens at publishing houses these days yeah yeah um and uh, and, um, uh, and then of course darkly hinting something all nefarious is going on right right exactly so uh, we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break i've been talking to greg lukianoff co-author of the canceling of the american mind cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all but there is a solution stay tuned this is an enlightening conversation i'm marcus peter filling in for al cresta on cresta in the afternoon I worked in pro baseball for a long time, and we play on Sundays. And it was an easy excuse. I took the easy out and just didn't go to Mass. Got caught up on that whole selfishness, that whole, you know, um, I can do it all. The times when I was struggling were the times I needed God the most. And now that uh, I've come back and accepted God, my world has completely changed. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? 
Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Support for this Ave Maria Radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Parents often resort to scolding, coaxing, or even bribing to get our kids to help with household chores. But what if I told you there's a more effective approach? The next time your child does anything helpful, pause to appreciate them. Say something like, hey, I noticed you put away your dirty dishes without being asked. Thanks for that. It's really thoughtful and responsible of you. You can even put a cherry on the top of your gratitude with a warm hug, a fist bump, or some other sign of affection. A few words of thanks are much more powerful than a whole paragraph of nagging or criticizing. Over time, you'll notice that these expressions of gratitude not only encourage more helpfulness from your kids, but more gratitude, too. Get more great parenting tips at CatholicHOM.com or check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace or Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John 6 verses uh, 48 to 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, meaning me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh, at which the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're scandalized by this. How is it that we're not? How is it that we just hear this and go, Oh yeah, I know that passage. They're just outraged, and at least perplexed. Sane people, inspired teachers, wise men, prophets, don't say things like this. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon, talking to Greg Lukianoff, co-author of The Canceling of the American Mind, Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All. But there is a solution. Now, Greg, we were talking about how, as as you and Ricky did the research for this book, it, it it's very clear, just based on objective observation, that the rhetorical 
bias, if you will, for something like the perfect rhetorical fortress is more prominent on the left. And so the the right wing narrative seems to be what you guys call the efficient rhetorical fortress. Why do you think it, it, it why do you think is it that these kinds of narratives, especially right now, this this kind of cancel culture is is stemming from uh, leftist narratives, political left, leftist yeah. sociopolitical narratives. So you know, I come from a, a, a liberal background, mm-hmm. um, and and I and I have no shame in saying that mm-hmm. because I think there is a major distinction between liberals and the left, and mm-hmm. this comes out in polling as well. Yep. Um, and when I was in college, and certainly I came from a more more working class background, I was kind of embarrassed by the the leftists on campus, and why by leftists I I mean the kind of people who thought that Lenin you know, wasn't so bad. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you know, like horrifying, yeah, yeah. like ugly, ugly, ugly stuff as far as I'm concerned and really embarrassing or still thought, you know, like um, we needed a, a, a Marxist revolution. Um, right, but right. they were pretty marginal in the 90s. Um, but a lot of those bad ideas have um, really, uh, w- which I thought would just die off on campus, just kept going. Um, and people like Herbert Marcuse, who was kind of a joke by the time he died, um, who had the idea of, um, he wrote an article back in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance, making the oh-so-sophisticated argument that um, there are good people like me, and then there are all those right-wingers out there, and that we should have free speech for people like me, mm-hmm. but not for the, the quote-unquote so-called conservatives or right-wing. I forgot how direct it was about mm-hmm. saying that, like, in his wonderful fascist paradise, um, the you know the, the good people would have free speech, but the baddies would not, and that was basically all the rest of American uh, uh, public. That those ideas really have uh, caught on, and mm-hmm. that's partially possible in an environment of very low viewpoint diversity. Um, and we've been watching how much weirder and weirder yep, yep. the environment on American college campuses has been getting. And the only good thing that I can say that came out of the October 7th uh, reaction on campus was that now I don't have to explain to nearly as many people that something's seriously wrong Mm. on college campuses because a lot of people got to see it with their own eyes. I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, it's one thing, you know, it's pretty awful to on the same day as the attacks to to blame it entirely on Israel. That's pretty horrifying. Um, it's another thing, level of comedy, for people to come out and protest in favor of the Houthis shooting missiles right. at right. civilian ships. Right. Um, right. It, 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 it's, it's reached a, a, like a, a comical level. And when you don't, when you have this kind of, um, when you have an ideology that's anti-free uh, speech and has a lot more kind of, you know, moral absolutism, because people talk a lot of times about this being moral relativism. Mm-hmm. It's not relativism. It's absolutism. Like, they, they think uh. this is a battle of good versus evil. And you don't have as many people that you know and trust and respect who disagree with you. Mm-hmm. You know, some of this tribal stuff is natural, but I don't want to attribute this just to unintentional natural forces. There was a lot of intention that went into a, a lot of this, and it's been building on campus for decades. And it's one of the reasons why we spend, and I want to be very clear about this, we spend a third of the book talking about potential solutions, not because we think this is easy to fix. We spend that much of the book uh, talking about it because we think it's very hard 
particularly in higher education. Right. And you do a really good job of pointing all of that out. You tackle some of the key aspects of uh, human flourishing in society. You talk about the the domestic family, the nuclear family. You, you talk about child rearing. You also talk about K through 12 education. And then finally, you tackle the question of higher education. But you, you highlight the fact that this has to start earlier on. So I, yes. I, I really don't want to jump ahead because that's a real goal mine. Uh, but I, I yeah. do want to just uh, you know, tap your mind a little more based on this whole notion of the barricades of the perfect rhetorical fortress, right? Yeah. Uh, because our, our listeners are listening to this and, and they hear these terms and you, you coined the term, but uh, they, they've seen this or some of them have received, been on the receiving end of this. So you know, kind of walk us through how this works out in public narrative. Oh, it's kind of funny. I don't actually have the book in front of me, so I don't remember all of the uh, all, all of the stages for the perfect rhetorical <laughs> fortress. Uh, in, so in the first one is is the speaker conservative. And, yeah, and then uh, you you talk about well, if he's conservative, okay, what's his race? And then what's the speaker's sex? And then what's the speaker's sexuality? And then is the speaker trans or cis? And then are they guilty by association? Can they be accused of being phobic anything? By the way, I checked that box. <laughs> as soon as I read your description, I realized I, I, I probably check every box for being phobic, which is funny. I don't think I have any phobias. So No. Well, that's not what it means. Anymore. I know. Like, it, like, like, it, it, it just ends up getting used. Like people used to use um, homophobic to mean people who are afraid that they themselves were were, were gay, mm. um, and then it got turned into uh, as an all-purpose. You're being critical of blah, um, and of course, it's used all the time as being, you know, Islamophobic. Right. Um, right. It, it, you know, um, in in cases where it's just you know critical of Hamas, it's not Islamophobia. <laughs> That's right. uh, but on campus, it might as well be. I mean, actually, Ricky, by the way, is much younger than me. She, she's 23, and she's mm -hmm. been sending me videos practically like while we're on air of the protests going on at Columbia right now, oh, um, which are all, you know, uniformly pro-Palestinian. And I get people, you know, having sympathy for the Palest uh, for the Palestinian, uh, Palestinian people, but at the same time to not say yes. And the thing that would help them the most would be to get rid of Hamas. Right. Um, if they can't say that, then where do you even begin? Right. And, and you, you kind of highlight exactly that, you know, kind of 8 to 11, you talk about, did the speaker lose their cool? Did the speaker violate a yeah. thought terminating cliche? Can you emotionally yeah. blackmail the speaker? Or can you insidiously ascribe some kind of dark narrative to what's going on? Mm -hmm. So in the face of all of this, we're seeing a real preponderance of what you and Ricky highlight of this oppressor oppressed narrative and it seems to be second nature and that's actually terrifying yeah yeah no the oppressor oppressed narrative you know we talk about this um uh in coddling as well and and there are some things that it, like that we didn't hit as hard in canceling because we thought we addressed them in such detail mm -hmm. in coddling including like where did this come from which we which we addressed to some degree in canceling the American mind, but we thought we didn't want to, you know, beat a dead horse on the role of social media, um, which is which is obviously key here. But we talk about intersectionality in both books, um, and it's become much more important to understand intersectionality mm -hmm. because at a banal level, the idea of intersectionality is very simple. You know, um, and it, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the founders of the critical race theory, yeah, yeah. you know, basically pointed out something that I think is true, that, that, the, that the challenges faced by 
black people in general are not necessarily the same as the challenges faced by black women in society. Mm-hmm. Um, that essentially, if you combined identities or black gay women, you know, might, might right. have a different experience. Yeah, literally the, well. the intersection of multiple minority subsets that an yeah. individual and I, uh, occupies. And I always loved the fact that um, uh, that um, Andrew oh my God, Sullivan, you know, talks about, like, if you really take intersectionality seriously but go all the way down the rabbit hole, you get back to individuality. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point, but that's not the way it's used. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it very quickly and very obviously becomes a moral matrix that essentially the world is divided into... Uh, evil oppressors and good and decent oppressed and anything the oppressed do against the evil oppressors is justified and the oppressors really can't justify anything uh, because they're they're bad. Right. And, and that, what's that's... maddening about this... Oh, go, go on. No, no, please. I don't want to interrupt your thought. What's maddening about this is that it's incredibly simplistic. It, it, it's childishly simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should not be taken seriously in institutions. I, in my first book, Unlearning Liberty, I referred to higher education supposed to being supposed to be the, uh, like a sophistication machine, it's supposed mm-hmm. to make us deeper, more nuanced thinkers. Right. But instead, it's leaving us with these incredibly oversimplified ways of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why the DEI um, uh, bureaucracy cannot and probably should not be saved in higher education as it currently exists. Because, mm-hmm. well, one, everyone needs to know that they're consistently, DEI officers are consistently threats to academic freedom and free speech. And right. we talk about a lot of examples of that in the book. But it's all based on ideas like intersectionality, which have a very oversimple idea of identity, uh, of, of like where you fit on this moral matrix. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing such ferocious anti-Semitism um, on some of these campuses, because, yeah, like by this definition, you know, like Jews are mostly white um, and, and and they're, by this definition, oppressors. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the Palestinian must be in the right and the Jews must be uh, kind of unavoidably forever and permanently um, the, the bad guys. And so when you have such a reductive, overly simple, and frankly, in many ways, racist, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the literal, yep. old-fashioned sense of it, way of looking at the world, um, it, it, there's no way to uh, just patch that up so it works in a way that is fair and just. So what you're saying is it's this This isn't just a societal, sociocultural, or sociopolitical issue. This is an issue with an underlying anthropology there's there's a poor understanding of the human person, therefore what defines the identity of the human person. So we have to reduce them to whatever mm-hmm. subset they occupy. Yeah, well, it, 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 exactly. And, and, and it ends up being, um, it, it steals your humanity. I mean, right. and, and this is something that, you know, when I was younger, I kind of thought that at some stage that we were developing a little bit more sort of appreciation for the quirks of individuals and their failings and that some of the best books you'll read will be about deeply flawed people, but trying to make amends and explain where they come from. And instead, we've replaced it with this very self-righteous, but also very anti-human kind of way of looking mm, at it, where mm. it's like, no, you, you are you are just the victim of the circumstances into which you were born um, that says more about you than anything about, you know, your relationship with your dad or right. your experiences, you know, working tables when you were a kid, you know, um, the uh, th- that you are the product of your blood and your genes, um, whether you like it or not. Um, and 
there's a lot of kind of like trying to work uh, work the way around this and like in the um in the language of of some of the post uh, some of the critical race theory stuff like no no race is just something put on people is one of the claims but mm-hmm. that's revealed to be complete bs in the way CRT right. actually talks about people. That's right. It's like, no, you're obsessed with race. You you think it's what probably the most relevant and real factor in existence. And by the way, you can never escape from it. It will always be the most important thing. Um, and they also tell students all the time that they need to be more pessimistic about the future of, of, of right. race. That's right. That's right. Which I which I remember talking to a, a talented young uh, uh, black graduate student who's going to a graduate program. Who at, at a function said, you know, it really just is true that that, that nothing's gotten better since uh, in American history for black people. And I'm like, like since slavery? Yeah, <laughs> you've got like, to be well, kidding yeah. me, right? But no, 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 no. no, no like, like seriously, kind of, kind of. He's kind of well, yeah. In a lot of ways, wow. he, he, he qualified a little bit. And I'm like, okay, I know that you've been taught that there is a system out there oppressing you. How is this what they're telling you? not that system. Right. Right. The only systemic oppression that's being put out is by the CRT narrative. Yeah, I remember yeah. Uh, I, I was attending a talk by... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm Malaysian and, and, and I'm a mi- minority of a minority, but point being, I was attending a talk and this person was insisting that America was founded upon racism. It's systemically racist and there's no other nation uh, more racist than America. And I, I oh couldn't take So I, I stood up and, and I, have I you met other people. I, have you? I, I, I was born and raised in Malaysia, where racism is yeah. constitutionally enshrined. And so, <laughs> and so no, but in, in the face of all this, I, I don't want to make this a, a personal thing. Right. But in the face of all of this, we're really seeing a massive historical amnesia, amnesia of history. But we're also seeing a complete disconnect from what's actually real because we're buying oh, yeah. narr- narratives that are just shoved at us. Yeah, well, no, it, 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 I, 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 the probably, well, I could talk a little bit more about this. It, it's, it's the, it's the tankies that I want to talk about, about like how much we are trying not to learn the lessons of the 20th century. Greg, I'm so sorry that the music's hit. Been talking to Greg Lukianov, co author of The Canceling of the American Mind Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating him like a magic wand, a rabbit's foot, only going to him when we need something? The results if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine. Putting coins in, then pulling the one arm bandit and expecting to win a big prize. We have to have that relationship with God so we can truly do His will and be truly happy. So follow Him, not just once in a while, but every single moment. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the fifth rule of St. Ignatius of Loyola's 14 Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, St. Ignatius teaches that when we are experiencing spiritual consolation, 
The Good Spirit guides and counsels us more. When we are experiencing spiritual desolation, it is the bad spirit that guides and counsels us more. And as St. Ignatius teaches, we cannot find the way to the right decision. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The time of spiritual consolation is thus the time to accept the work of God, to be open, to listen, to receive the thoughts and inspirations arising from the consolation itself. Father Gallagher continues, The thoughts that arise out of spiritual desolation, the guidance and counsel of the bad spirit we then receive, if followed, will always lead to spiritual diminishment. How has the good spirit been guiding your heart today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Hey, welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon, rounding off the first hour of today's program. We had a truly engaging conversation with Greg Lukianoff. I'm going to invite you, if you missed it, to check out the archives or to purchase a copy of his book, Cancelling of the American Mind, by Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott. I want to return to this fundamental notion. The premise of all that is for racism and for leftist narratives hinges upon the fact that the human person is incapable of rising up beyond certain categories. We are defined by the image of God that's been placed upon our souls. And therefore, we can meritoriously rise above our circumstances. Stay tuned as we continue conversations like this. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon, second hour of today's program. My name is Marcus Peter. I'm filling in for Al Cresta. Al is away on business. I am the director of marketing here at Ave Maria Radio. I'm also one of the radio hosts. I host Unveiling the Covenants. You can also find the video episodes on YouTube if you're interested. This hour, we'll be talking about the great mandate, the missionary mandate that you and I receive from Jesus Christ, especially with language like, I will make you fishers of men. We'll be talking with Jeff Kassab about that. And then after that, we talk to Dr. Regis Martin about what it takes to make marriage as a sacrament and covenant work. And then finally, we'll be talking about the saint of today, St. Francis de Sales. St. Francis de Sales is known as the Doctor Caritatis, the doctor of love, because the church sees in his great patrimony, particularly his spiritual direction works, the heritage of one who invites us to draw deeper into the love of God. So one would think he would be the doctor of spiritual direction, but really all he does is to draw us into true charity for God and for others. And this charity, this agape, is selfless. In Francis de Sales' own words, when we dive deeper into the life of being devout we start rising with swift and soaring wings. So devotion for him to God is a kind of spiritual activity that enlivens us. And it's through which God works in us so that love increases within us. And that's what he wanted to compel his spiritual children to. That's what he continues to teach the church 
to this very day. Devotion to God leads us to practice love readily and diligently. And that love looks like a very certain thing. It is a complete commitment to that which is true and good, primarily in God, and then overflowing into our life in relation with others. So, as we continue on today, and even as later when we take a look at the headlines, what I want to challenge everyone to do as you're listening to this is to seek St. Francis de Sales' intercession, that we may become truly devout people. And in this life of being devout, to be spiritually more attuned to the love of the Father as he pours himself into us, that we may become more like him. For now, let's take a look at the headlines. Thank you, Marcus, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, January 24th. It's the Feast of St. Francis de Sales. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. U.S. Central Command is confirming that three airstrikes were carried out Tuesday against Western Iraq facilities linked to Iranian-backed militias. According to TP Central Command, the airstrikes hit three locations near the Syrian border that included headquarters and training locations for Iranian-backed groups as well as a storage area for rockets, missiles, and drones. The airstrikes were in retaliation for Saturday's attack that injured four Americans on a base in Iraq. The top Republican in the Senate is calling for more aid to Ukraine in its war with Russia. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today said backing Ukraine is about cold, hard American interests. He said it's in America's interest to degrade Russia's military. The United Auto Workers Union is endorsing President Biden in the race for the White House. UAW President Sean Fain made the announcement today in Washington, D.C., Fain went on to criticize Trump's record on unions, claiming the former president doesn't care about the American worker. He also referenced how Biden last year became the first sitting president to join a picket line when he visited workers striking for higher wages in Michigan. The UAW won record-setting contracts with automakers in November. Biden has consistently described himself as the most pro-union president in history. And a familiar face is set to return to The Daily Show next month, John Stewart will host the Comedy Central show on Monday nights beginning February 12th. The former host will sit behind the desk through the 2024 election. The Daily Show has been using guest hosts as it continues to look for a permanent replacement for Trevor Noah after he left in December of 2022. Stewart ended his first run as host of the comedic news program in 2015 after a 16-year run. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. In Matthew 4, verse 19, Jesus says to Simon Peter and to Andrew these, these words that possessed as much power then as they do today. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, John Paul II in 1990 went on to say in Redemptoris Missio, may young people, may all people have the courage to reply to Jesus's words as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 verse 8. Here am I, Lord, I am ready, send me. Now, in the face of this particular narrative, our next guest 
has written something pondering this reality. Jeff Kassab is a speaker with the ECRC's Speaker Bureau. That's the uh, Eastern Catholic Re-Evangelization Center. He's a lifelong Catholic and subdeacon for the Diocese of St. Thomas the Apostle, the, the Eparchy of St. Thomas the Apostle. He founded the Genesis 4-9 Men's Group in 2016 and is involved heavily in marriage ministry with his bride, Ahlam. And you may find his blog at thejourneytoheaven.com. Jeff, my friend, how are you doing? Very well, Marcus. <clears throat> so nice to hear your voice. Likewise, brother. Likewise. So I saw this article and I immediately told Brian, we have to have you on uh, to, to talk about this. So you've mentioned before this this deep burning design in your heart, and you know I share that too, of this urgency of the gospel message for all of us in some way to become fishers of men. So I know that's where this is coming from, but what specifically led you to pen this? Um, yeah, uh, so, you know, pondering lately uh especially the last i don't know month or two months everybody you run across you know and talk to about evangelization or you know uh do you evangelize or what are you doing to evangelize and you know the the common answer i get from like 95 percent of the people you know that it's just not for me you know evangelization spreading the gospel maybe is for you and for some other people and for you know, clergy and for priests, and but it's just not for me. And I heard this so much, I just kind of, I, I just, I said, you know, this is people need to be known, uh, need to be known to people that preaching the gospel, evangelization, you know, it's for everyone. You know, Jesus, um, and a lot of people don't really understand this, but Jesus is very sometimes very blunt in Scripture. You know, he gives us sometimes direct commandments. Yep. And sometimes he gives us indirect commandments. So, for example, in you know Matthew twenty six nineteen, this is a direct commandment: go mm-hmm. make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I'll be with you always to close it. A direct commandment to mm-hmm. the twelve apostles, and not just to them, because as we know, that commandment to to go out and baptize. It can't end with the the death of the twelfth apostle. That's who, right. You know, whereas it cannot. Otherwise, Christianity would have never spread. And then he goes far when he calls the sons of Zebedee. Now this is a you know follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now this is kind of an indirect com- a commandment, right? He's mm-hmm. he's telling them, listen, I, I, follow me. You're not going to be fishers of men right now, but I will make you. I will qualify you, Mm -hmm. I will teach you, I will guide you, and you will learn from me. Then you'll be fishers of men. And I think this this particular uh, indirect command from Jesus is so, uh, to me, Marcus, it's just, it really hits the heart of evangelization. Because are we fishers of men? Are, are we really doing that? I mean, it can't, again, it can't just end with the 12. It's all of us are called to be fishers of men. The unfortunate thing is, <clears throat> when you ask people this question, are you fishers of men? No, it's not for me. Pretty much what they're saying indirectly is, <clears throat> well, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to be a disciple of Christ right now because being a disciple of Christ requires a radical change in my life. That's right. And I just don't want to do it. It demands too much of me, and I'd rather stay the, live the life that I have yeah. right now. 
I'm comfortable. I got a wife. I got a couple of kids. I go to the gym a couple of days a week. Weekends, I watch football with my buddies. <laughs> uh, sometimes we go out to dinner. I'm comfortable, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have time for this. Yet, can you imagine if the 12th of the, the sons of Zebedee, they were fishing in their father's business, That's supporting right. him, um, supporting the family business. It's the only income they had. They just they made a radical change, Marcus, mm-hmm. to follow Christ and to become fishers of men. Now they had the free will; they had the choice to sell Jesus. You know what, Jesus? We're not. We're, this is not for us. Go find two other men. Mm-hmm. But they didn't say that. They they just they dropped. The scripture says they dropped everything and came. Yep. So, you know, their father must have told they must have looked at their father, you know, and I keep getting visions from the series The Chosen. I'm just kind of obsessed with the chosen lately, you know? <laughs> and and you know, they, they look at their father and Zebedee's like, Go and they're like, What are you waiting for? you know, like he's the Messiah. Right. So that's our calling, Marcus. So many people are afraid. And listen, I'm we're not saying that you, you know, you'd be like me or you or other people that chose to go right. and get theology degrees and that's study, right. you know, right. 10 years. I'm not telling you to do that. Mm-hmm. Evangelize in your own way. Um, everybody has different gifts they can evangelize. And God will God will give you that support that he knows. Whatever gift you have, right, God will send the Holy Spirit upon those gifts, and those gifts will flourish. That's right. And be fruitful. That's but right. We, we, we need to make that choice, Marcus. I, I'm, I'm completely I'm, with you, brother. And I, I think that's one of the concerns. You, you and I have spoken about this kind of off the mic as well, that uh, <coughs> it would appear that the concern of the faithful is I'm not equipped enough, right? But the fact of the matter is you don't need a master's in theology to no. do the work of of drawing people into the embrace of Jesus Christ. You don't need a doctorate in theology to be able to, at the very least, read the scriptures and then see what yeah. the catechism says about it and to share that with people. No one's asking for a, a big doctrinal treatise. We each have our own callings in our own state of life. But, yeah. you know, you, you face this in your apostolate as well, this common, uh, I, I'm not equipped, you know, I, I don't have what it takes. Yeah. So you guys with your degrees, you go ahead and do it. Yeah, Exactly. You know, Marcus, name, and I, I was trying to think of this all day today as I got the call from your producer that I was going to be on. And I'm trying to think of a saint or a priest mm-hmm. or a bishop that when he was called to this was qualified. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right, but right. Name me a saint that was qualified for this. Were the three children of Fatima qualified? No, absolutely no. not. Was 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 I mean was Saint Augustine qualified? Was was all, all these others were they qualified? By no means. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, what does Jesus do? Just like he did with the sons of Zebedee and the other twelve. First he said, Follow me. Mm-hmm. Then I will make you first of all, meaning I will teach you, I will guide you, I will do all that. But you first have to accept the call. That's right. Follow me. Right? right, and and again the the example the, I I think this analogy I think this is the analogy why I got so much responses from this article from friends and from people like you and everybody is because the analogy that I chose in here was <clears throat> you know I'm I'm not a by all means I'm I, I'm the worst fisherman ever I, I I can throw a, a pole out there for days and weeks I will never catch it <laughs> I've never caught a fish in my life I'm just the worst fisherman. 
right? But what, are, what, when I, what I do when I'm fishing, I keep changing bait to, to try to catch mm-hmm. something. So it's the same thing with, ev- with, with ev- evangelization, right. right? You cast out the line, and you, you're, you don't catch nothing. But here, when it comes to evangelization, we use different baits. We have scripture, mm-hmm. we have the catechism, we have testimonies, we have lives of the saints. We have so many tools that the Catholic Church offers us that if this doesn't work with this particular fish, this particular crowd, then use a different bait. That's right. If I'm going out and catching bass, I can't throw um, fake bait out there. From what I know, they right. like live bait. That's right. So That's right. I have to use the right bait to catch the right fish. It's the same thing with evangelization, Marcus. Yeah. When you when you know that you you got certain you got a group of people. For example, um, if you're evangelizing some atheists, you're not going to go throw Thomas Aquinas out That's there. That's right. I mean, you, you know, you're 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 not even going to throw scripture out there because they don't believe in any of that. Mm-hmm. You have to start at the very basics, which could just be your own personal experience mm-hmm. and encounter with the Lord. It could be as simple as that. Right. So. You got to use different baits. I, I, I don't know. It's, it sounds like, you know, it's very simple, but people make it very, very difficult. Right. I think, I think we can overthink the entire enterprise of evangelization. And part, I guess part of the other problem is in the face of uh, where we are in the church right now with such great evangelists, you know, people like Al Cresta, Scott Hahn, mm-hmm. we can sometimes think, well, gosh, I could never be that, so why bother? But, but really yeah. what we ought to be telling ourselves is, I, 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 I could never be that, and that's great, because that means I can be what God wants me to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. You know, it, we're, we're, it, it's great that we always look up to these great evangelists. I mean, I'll look at Dr. Scott Hahn's post, and he gets five and 10, 15,000 likes and shares. You know, and we, we post something, we get 10 or 12 mm-hmm. or 15. But uh, my goal is not to be like Dr. Scott that's Hahn. Right. My goal is to bring... Out of those 15 people that shared my post, if one of them comes to Christ, I'm okay with it. I'm I'm okay with it. Because how do we bring people to the kingdom? In my opinion, it's one at a time. I mean, you know, very few people, unless you're like, you know, St. Peter on uh, Pentecost, you Mm -hmm. you can bring 3,000 or 5,000 at one time, which is great. But I don't think God has called us for that. I think God has called us to just bring a soul at a time. You know, when you throw, when you're, if, you, if you're throwing a pole in the water, Marcus, how many fish are you catching at a time? Oh, one, one. at a time. One at, one at a time, right? Yep. Um, I mean, again, unless you're very, you know, you're really fishing, uh, like a commercial, you're throwing nets out there. Right, right. But, and, and maybe, and that's what Dr. Scott Hahn does. These guys throw the, the nets out there and catch thousands. Mm-hmm. But you and I and the average evangelist, are just are aiming for one at a time, and yeah. I think that's what I think that's what God, that's what the Lord is calling us for, guys. Just bring one soul at a time. That's all I ask. Okay, so I'm, uh, we're running out of time, and I want you to just t- very briefly, how can someone just start doing this fishing of men? Um, uh, Marcus, I, I I'm going to use the very last phrase that I put in my article. I put. Um, in the famous words of St. John Paul, do not be afraid. I, and if I you th- feel like you need to start with Scripture, start with Scripture. First of all, again, well, I said you need to be... We, we have to stop there, Jeff. I'm sorry. Uh, I've been talking to Jeff Kassab. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta and Cresta in the afternoon.
Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. In the midst of our culture today, in this age of relativism, which wants to grant Jesus some significance, but not so much, so we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith, and please God, the faith of everyone here, is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with Him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with Him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. He once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. 
CharityMobile.com. Hey, welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Marcus Beecher, filling in for Al Cresta as Al goes about the business of running Harvey Maria Radio. Continue to pray for us, please. As we continue this hour, we will talk to Dr. Regis Martin. Years ago, a friend asked Dr. Regis Martin what he thought was, a necess- was necessary for a successful marriage, and Regis answered, prayers and earplugs, and while it's a bit of a silly answer, it leads us to discuss what does really help a marriage work. Dr. Regis Martin is a professor of theology and a faculty associate with the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life at Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. He podcasts at the In Search of the Still Point. And his latest book, Looking for Lazarus, A Preview of the Resurrection, was released in 2021. Dr. Martin, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And it, it truly is a blessing to have you on the program, and I'm really honored to be conversing with you. So... I, uh, I just wanted to dive right into this article you wrote. This is what makes marriage work. I, I have a tremendous wealth of uh, marital advice and wisdom to offer, considering I've only been married for four years. So, <laughs> so, and, and I'm still learning. It's amazing. The covenant continues to enlighten me uh, about my own flaws, as well as the strengths that God has given me to be husband. And yet here, in, in, in your article, you start off by saying that prayer and earplugs are, are the two greatest pieces of advice for a good marriage. So help us understand what's going on here. Well, that was a, a perfectly fatuous comment I, <laughs> I made, and I've since regretted it. But uh, at least half of, of the statement is true. I mean, prayer is indispensable. It wonderfully concentrates the mind. And if you're praying, then I think you're disposed uh, to listen to your wife and maybe even your kids. So take the earplugs off. But uh, open your ears and your eyes so that you can uh, receive a reality that you didn't yourself make, but uh, are privileged uh, to somehow uh, witness uh, and be enriched by. I mean, children are a great blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have found after 40, almost 40 years of marriage, that uh, so long as I do whatever she tells me, uh, I'm going to be pretty safe. <laughs> and uh, if if it doesn't work, then it's uh, it's matter for mortification, and I can grow in in charity that way. But more often than not, uh, my my wife has been spot on. So, you you've thought about, taught about, and written quite a bit on the marital sacrament. And uh, just help us understand on a biblical perspective and a theological perspective, why is it that marriage is so so much under attack? Why is it whenever there's a turn of the culture, marriage comes directly under attack? And then we can zoom into some of the advice that you offer in this article. Well, I I think marriage is under attack because God is, uh, and uh, contempt for God gets expressed, I think, in a certain disdain for marriage, and Mm -hmm. and especially since marriage is so demanding, it's it's sacrificial. You have to die to yourself, and that's not exactly popular. Uh, People resist that. They would rather, I I think, uh, uh, glorify the self uh, and exclude others. Uh, I want to be at the center of the universe. And the thing you discover early on when you get married is that you're no longer at the center. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to serve some other center. Uh, 
I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, if I hadn't been married, uh, I would never realize how how little I know, uh, how dumb, uh, how stupid uh, my mistakes have been. I would consider myself quite perfect. Right, right. But happily, I have a wife uh, who who has the gift of candor, and she's not very shy about pointing out my shortcomings. I, I, enjoy- that's, that's, I think that's salutary. It's good to know yep, yep. Uh, what what you don't know. And and I, I think that's very laudable about both our brides. I'm very grateful for the fact that the graces of the sacrament enable her to call me out on my flaws as lovingly as she does tell me I love you. So uh, you you write here that so if and this to me is the is is the final nail in the coffin in terms of marital advice. So if you want a good marriage, one that will outlast the follies committed by guys like me, which is which is quite frankly laughable to think about. I don't think of you as a man of folly, but be sure and find a mate seriously wedded to Christ. And and you make this you make this term in in no one you make this statement in no uncertain terms. So explain to us why is that such a crucial uh, uh, adage to hold on to. Yeah. Well, I think that was a superb advice that uh, Fulton Sheen uh, once gave. In fact, he enshrined it in a book with the title, Free to Get Married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to invite Jesus to the wedding. God needs to be part of, of marriage. Part of, I mean, another name for God is love, eros. Mm-hmm. And, and so to the extent we love, we're able to participate in his own life, which is pure, unending love. So you can't go wrong. Uh, if you place Christ at the center and the two of you mutually uh, subject yourselves to him. Um, let him be the North Star that guides the movements of, of your marriage. And and I think if you do that, it, it's going to turn out to be wildly uh, successful and happy. It's not to say there won't be the cross along the way, but, you know, Catherine of Siena reminds us that all the way to heaven is heaven because Christ is the way, and it necessarily leads through the cross. But strangely enough, there's a kind of joy in that, because Mm -hmm. you're annealed in grace to Christ, and he's really carrying it for you, with you, in you. And if the two of you share that cross, I I think it becomes a, a real liberation. And and that's outstanding because you don't find that narrative in the public sphere as it pertains to marriage. Marriage is nothing more than a contract of taxation convenience and a convenience of sentiment and affection. Talking to Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University at Steubenville, Ohio. So please continue to talk to us about how the burying of the cross in marriage is not a matter of begrudging suffering, but truly a matter of growth and happiness. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, I, I'm, I'm always struck by this comment he made. He says, uh, love anything, uh, and sooner or later it will break your heart. Mm. Uh, even if you give your affection to a dog, you're going to find grief uh, along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that it's important. Uh, uh, somebody said that there are places in the human heart that don't yet exist, and into those places suffering enters in order to give them existence. Living for another person means you suffer with and for and in that person. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good working uh, definition of compassion, you know, a passion with, a pathos Mm -hmm. uh, that you feel with and for the other, a kind of empathetic heart. Right, and and 
only sacramental covenantal marriage can bring that about in the in another person which bring, which helps me think about catechism 1603 that god truly himself is the author of marriage and he has designed marriage to work a certain way i think about on october the 2nd just uh, this past october the 2nd the state of new york started recognizing polyamorous relationships as a kind of civil marriage if you will and in, in the sight of all that you're telling us that marriage is under attack because God is under attack and God alone is the author of marriage. So this seems to be an insurmountable task. How do we make this work? Well, you can't you can't succeed without grace. Amen. Jesus is very explicit about that. Without me, you can do nothing. And I think he means it more than just morally. He mm -hmm. means it metaphysically. It means the only thing you can do, take ownership of, uh, is nothing. And that's another word for sin. The absence of, of the good, mm -hmm. love's shadow. That's all we can do uh, without grace. Right. And marriage is the sacrament which Jesus himself instituted in order to confer grace. I mean, marriage has been around a long time. It antedates even Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think Chesterton had the sense of it when he said, sex is an instinct that eventuates in an institution. <laughs> and that instinct has been inscribed in, 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 in the human heart from the beginning. But marriage, Christian marriage, raises that instinct, not just to an institutional level, mm -hmm. but to the level of a covenant, mm -hmm. a, a sharing, a participation uh, in God's own life, God's own love. And that, that's a pretty strong impetus uh, right. uh, for going forward. That, that's what sustains us. Right. And from covenant, Christ elevates it to the level of sacramentum, truly a reflection of the interior intimacy that the Trinity shares. So in light of that, just help us understand when Paul writes, wives be subject to their husbands, which is a common attack against the Christian understanding sure. of marriage. Just help us shed light on, for, for our listeners, what is really to be understood from that? Well, I, I think just to begin with, uh, the wives have all the advantages here. Yes, okay, <laughs> Amen. subject to your husband, but uh, remember, the husband is subject to Christ, and mm -hmm. he has to suffer and die for you. <laughs> right. yeah, that's pretty demanding. But I think implicit in, in the marital uh, exchange is a mutual subjection, submission to Christ. I mean, if, if husbands were to try to be like St. Joseph and mothers and wives like Mary, they would be able to raise children like Jesus, mm. and that would make the world a, a far better place. It would suddenly look pretty lovely. <laughs> and, and that's why we have the Holy Family, not just as a school of prayer, but a model of the domestic church. There's a kind of liturgy that we are called to inscribe in our family life, in, in the way we live out our marriage. Yeah, I think that's why uh, couples really need to pray together uh, and go to Mass together, say the Rosary together. I mean, these are not meant to be solitary pursuits. And, yeah. and, and, and you bring, you bring precisely that up. You, you mentioned precisely that, that without, without prayer, we're not only not disposed to listen to the needs of our brides and our children, we, we become completely indifferent to them. Yeah, there's a, a great line in, in Pascal about prayer. He says, look, God instituted it so that he might confer upon his creatures the dignity of becoming a cause. Mm. I, I think that's to be understood quite literally. By our prayers, we really do cause 
things to happen. Right. I mean, by your prayers, you might even uh, cause God to send you a wife or a husband. And once you find this mate, uh, the prayer will, I, I think, help maintain the relationship and even deepen it and make it glorious, exhilarating. It's a path of holiness. It's the high road back home to heaven. Right. You don't have to travel it alone. In fact, if you wait long enough, you'll probably have five or six people traveling that road with you. Or in our case, ten. Oh, wow. And that's truly wonderful. Pray for my bride and I. Uh, You know, parents of four lovely, beautiful children. We're very grateful for them. So I I want to... Well, God bless you for that. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Martin. And, And let's keep each other in prayer. Uh, we're going to have to end this segment because we're down to 30 seconds. Uh, I want to invite every one of us listening to look up the work of Dr. Regis Martin. You're going to find this article, What Makes Marriage Work, on the National Catholic Register and Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Dr. Martin, it was an honor and a pleasure to have you on the program, and we'll continue our conversation in the future. Well, it was, the honor was entirely my own, and it was a delight. So nice to, to chat with you. God bless you. God bless you, sir. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I Can't Get No Satisfaction is a popular song, but it could be a summary of our life on earth. In the book of Genesis, we hear that we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means that we can know the truth and we can choose to do good to others. We can love. It comes to fulfillment in the Sermon on the Mount where we hear these Beatitudes. It's the standard of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that if we hear what he says and do what he tells us to do, we will be like wise people who build our house on solid rock. 
But we make progress towards happiness and blessedness by our actions, and it starts with our interior disposition, what we want to choose. Do you and I hunger and thirst for those things that will lead us to happiness and to God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Believers who respond to God's Word and become members of Christ's body are intimately united to Him, the Catholic Catechism tells us. In that body, those who believe are united with Christ through the sacraments in a very real and hidden way. The body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members who engage in a diversity of functions. The unity of the mystical body triumphs over all human divisions. As St. Paul says, there are no Jews, no Greeks, no slave, no free man. All are one in the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body of the church, the principle of creation and redemption. We are united with Christ in his Passover. All his members must strive to resemble him until Christ is formed in them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter here, filling in for Al Cresta. Nothing so much presses a man's heart as love. This was written by St. Francis de Sales, whose feast day we celebrate today. And he wrote this in one of his two famous works. This one is called The Treatise on the Love of God. If a man know that he is beloved, be it by whom it may, he is pressed to love in his turn. We want to talk about the reality of St. Francis de Sales being the Doctor Caritatis, the the doctor of love, the doctor of charity, as the church has named him. We're talking with Dr. David G. Bonagura. He is an adjunct professor at St. Joseph Seminary, New York, and he's the author of Steadfast in Faith, Catholicism and the Challenges of Secularism in Staying with the Catholic Church, Trusting God's Plan of Salvation. David, how are you doing? Hello, Marcus. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and it's really good to hear from you again. Thanks for having me again. So uh, let's let's launch right into this. I want to start by asking you, it, it would have been far too on the nose and too easy for the Church to have named St. Francis of Sales the Doctor of Spiritual Direction. Instead, he's known as Dr. Caritatis, you know, do- the Doctor of Love. Why is that? That's a great connection there, from the Doctor of Spiritual Direction to the, doc- to the Doctor of Caritatis of Love, precisely because the spiritual life and spiritual direction that's a, what it leads to is the love of God. Mm-hmm. So in his most famous book that anybody can read and really profit from, Introduction to the Devout Life, which is quite literally an A to Z step guide on, you know, devout life sounds maybe fancy and intimidating, but we could put it more simply in today's terms, how to be a good Catholic, right. an A to Z term there. But what he was, how does he describe devotion, de- devout, the adjective devotion and that? It says love of God in the sense of charity, in the sense of doing things for God, and how do we do things for God? by loving him and also by loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the way of caritatis, for, mm-hmm. that's the way of devotion for St. Francis. And so to, spiritual direction is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end, it's a means to getting toward the love of God. And St. Francis was known in his day as, as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, spiritual directors living in the area of France and Switzerland, mm-hmm. 
in the 1600s, and then he, uh, you know, his his legacy lives on. We celebrate his feast day today, and his writings are available in multiple translations. You can you can get them online in you know two seconds by putting it into an internet search, or you could buy the book at any Catholic bookstore. Right, exactly. And uh, for those of you listening, genuinely just Google the work, either Introduction to the Devout Life or Treatise on the Love of God, and they are available online, but multiple Catholic publishers continue to publish them. Uh, So, you know, you've got various iterations that you may feel free to draw from. Now, uh, David, I want to circle right back into exactly what you were just talking about, which is that the devout life truly understood is one that compels us to not only receiving the love of God, but to deeper love of God ourselves, and then by virtue of that, our neighbors. In, in order to to further extrapolate that, we need to first ask ourselves, what does it mean to love? What is love by Francis de Sales' understanding, by the Catholic understanding? The classical definition of love is to, give, is to will the good for another, to mm-hmm. will the good for another. So when we try to, what is truly good, when we try to bring that to a person, whether it be, like, for instance, giving food to the poor, or the spiritual works of mercy, instructing the ignorant, or maybe something more simple and more mundane, like giving something to our, our children or our neighbors in order to, so that they can, you know, doing something nice for a neighbor, like making cookies for his or her birthday, something to that effect. Any sort of small thing, and St. Francis is kind of like, I think people are more familiar with St. Therese's spirituality these days, the little way. Mm -hmm. St. Francis wasn't, you know, he wasn't saying, you know, go get at the head of the army and go lead the troops into battle, and that's how you become a a virtuous and devout Catholic. No, no, no. He was much more of the sense of doing the little small things. That's how we show we will the good for another, and also will the good for ourselves, teaching us how to love ourselves in the proper way, in the way that God would want us to do. So we by developing the virtues, which that we can maybe speak a little bit on, there's so much to say on, on that on with St. Francis himself. So this, this present modern notion that we have of love, this love that seems to be born out of an understanding of the individualistic expressionism, this that I love because I'm looking for some kind of fulfillment. It's born of the passions. It's It seems to be dry, driven from the affect. It's a complete perversion of what love, true love, actually is. Exactly. So lo- love is a verb. You know, it's an action that we do. It's not simply a feeling. When we think of romantic love, what the Greeks called eros, mm-hmm. there's a nature, there's feeling attached to that. But the when we're talking about love in the sense of car, caritas, charity, mm-hmm. that's the love of willing the good for another, of trying to do good for another person, to sacrifice oneself for the good of the other. Those are things that you could do without feeling. In fact, you could do that even with, with negative feelings. When uh, that's right. you know, a parent goes charging up the stairs in the middle of the night to help uh, a child who's crying or upset he's he mom or dad are, that moment are probably not filled with warm bubbly feelings of mm-hmm. love probably, certainly not but they're doing they will the good of another whatever the, that child needs the parent is sacrificing his or her own sleep right in order to get her own comfort in order to go comfort that child so that's a good image to think of the love in the sense of the christian sense of love of christ's sense of love of giving oneself not in the sense of how one feels 
but of making the choice to give oneself away. Right. And just reading, so uh, I, I've gone through uh, Introduction to Devout Life as well, and I remember that there was a small season of life where every day all I would do was read chapter one. And it's not because that I'm, I'm that thick-headed that I didn't understand it. It's that every day, every day I wanted this to sink deeper and deeper into me, right? And one of the things that he highlights is that there's, there's a kind of directionality about love as true love. The modern secular notion help presents to us as if love is this 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 euphoria, and because of that, it's all about the self. Well, the problem with that is if that's love, then I can, by definition, fall out of love the moment I stop feeling the euphoria. Meanwhile, Christian love, the love that Francis de Sales is talking about here, is one that compels me out of myself. It compels me to selflessness. It compels me to will the good of the other over the self, because very often I don't feel like doing this thing, and yet love draws me to do it. So tell us more about that. Right. So the, again, the idea of love as a, as a verb, that's, we can think when you just formulated that question, I thought of the line from St. Paul, that Caritas Christi Urget notes, that the love mm. of Christ compels us. That's right. That his sacrifice that he gave for us compels us to do the same in imitation of him. So when we call ourselves Christians... We are, that means we're doing our best to live in the way that Jesus Christ himself lived. Not an easy task. We all fall short of it. But nevertheless, that's the goal, that no greater love has a man than this to lay down his life for his friends, right. our Lord tells us. That's the, the model of love that we're looking for, and it's hard. It's really, <laughs> it's really yep. difficult. Yep. And especially, you dig into the spiritual life and Man, even the, those the little things is where I think where the real tests are. Right, one right. Thing, you know, not to be mean to our neighbor and you know spit on him as we walk by his house, perhaps. But <laughs> I'll tell you another thing: with these little things, where someone at work say asks for something, and you know our mindset is to do something else, and we're we're pricked up that no, oh, I don't want to go do this, or mm-hmm. and to overcome that inclination to clam up or the inclination to be selfish and to lay down one's life for one's friend. In this case, lay down life in the sense of lay down what I'm doing, lay down what I prefer to do, lay down my comfort, and give of myself so that it hurts. It's something that requires constant training and mm. prayer and preparation for it. And it will fall short, but nevertheless, that's the goal that we're always striving to reach for, and it all comes from just imitating Christ. Right. So when, when Francis Sales talks about devotion and the devout life, he really is talking about an expression of love that is owed to God. I, I guess in classical language, we would imagine this to be akin to the virtue of religio, religion, giving to God that which he's owed. Exactly. Right. Religion, we think, I think we tend to think of religion often as, you know, and this is true, religion has two definitions. The first definition is one we think of more often, mm-hmm. is a set of beliefs or practices by which people relate to God, so Catholicism is a religion with a set of beliefs whereby we relate to God, but there's also religion as a virtue, a subset of right. justice. Right. Justice means to give a, to another person what he's due. Religion means to give to God what he's due. And how do we give to God what he's due? Well, first, we is follow the commandments. We keep the commandments. It's the first way. The second is we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we take that, that following the law and into the new law of Christ, and we take that to the to the next level and live that out to the best that we can. So then let, let's let's dive a little deeper into why Francis de Sales's works are as 
precious then as they are today. I mean, they're, they're literally timeless. I don't know a single person who's picked up the introduction to devout life and not thought to himself, gosh, he's writing to me. There's something really exactly. brilliant about it. <laughs> totally. I think because he speaks right to the core of what it means to be a human being and right to the core of what it means to be a Christian, and those are all timeless values in, in that they are in living. So there's five parts to introduction to the devout life, and mm-hmm. it's a great book to read, and you could even use it for prayer, or like for morning prayer and meditation, because each chapter is two, two to three pages. Mm-hmm. So you could pick it up, and the first one is about the, the foundation of the spiritual life is turning away from sin and beginning to follow the Lord Jesus. So just like the way Jesus calls Peter and he calls the other apostles away from what they're doing to go follow him. That's the first part of living the devout life, of loving God, is turn away from things that are evil and begin to do good. Mm-hmm. The second part is then to develop a life of prayer. How do we relate to God? Who is He? How do we how do we show that we love Him? How do we come into relationship with Him? That's the prayer. And St. Francis Sales got all these recommendations of how we can pray the Mass better, what do we do when our minds are wandering, how do we mm-hmm. uh, meditate on the Gospels, all those little little things, little pieces of how to pray are all included within that part. And then I think really importantly, the third and fourth parts are given to, respectively, developing virtue and overcoming temptation. Mm-hmm. Two things, two essential pieces of the spiritual life and of the Catholic life that we too often we just don't pay attention to for whatever the reason. But number one, developing virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is a good habit. So we need to right. find ways that we can continue repeat the good actions over and over again. And he's not thinking of the the classic virtues of justice and fortitude and temperance, mm-hmm. as Borton Brothers are. He's thinking of the little ones, meekness, temperance, prudence, and thinking about all of them in very small-scale stuff. So how can we, for instance, hold our tongue when uh, someone says something that, that irks us? Mm-hmm. Or how can we... Um, we respond in charity to something, to some sort of challenge that we meet when we're, say, at work. So we've got all these little, small-scale things that help us in the daily goings of our life, the, the virtues. And then finally, how to overcome temptation. He's got all this great advice on you know, all different types of temptations, too, whether it be sexual temptations or temptations to gluttony or any of the other, mm-hmm. or anger, any of the other, sec- the, uh, the other deadly sins. He's got He's speaking to us. He's speaking yep. to us in the 21st century. He was speaking to those to whom he was writing in the 17th century, and he was speaking to every time in between, and he will continue to, because these are this is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what's so truly profound. I think one of the mistakes we can make in thinking uh, is that theology is inorganic. There's a certain kind of mechanicalness to it, and it's only to be contemplated by those who are apt to think that way, when, when in reality, a, a true theological spirit spiritual work. It's one that ha- has a real lived-out reality, and the more you study it, the more it, quote-unquote, saves your soul and compels you to bring others to the experience of the salvation. So, uh, the, the final... Th- oh, gosh, we're, we're going to be running out of time, David. How can people reach you uh, uh, for all the good work that you're doing? The uh, best place to look for me is my website, which is my name, www.davidgbonagora, B-O-N-A-G-U-R-A, junior.com, and also the same handle on Twitter. Well, thank you for joining us, David. The, the honor is always mine, and it's been a true pleasure. 
been talking to David G. Bonagura, adjunct professor at St. Joseph Seminary, New York. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Stay tuned as we round off the second hour. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola describes the challenging characteristics of spiritual desolation in the fourth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius states that finding oneself totally slothful, tepid, sad, falls within the experience of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The adverb totally is powerful here. Ignatius applies it to three further forms of spiritual desolation. Persons in such desolation may experience themselves as entirely slothful, tepid, and sad. When a person finds themselves totally slothful, they lack spiritual vitality. When a person is tepid, they lack spiritual zeal. And when they experience a sadness connected to their life of faith, they lack interior joy. Have you asked for the grace to identify and reject spiritual desolation in your life today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon, rounding off the second hour of today's program. St. Francis of Sales leaves us an invaluable heritage for us to consider in terms of our growth in life as Catholics. One of the things that I want to highlight comes from Chapter 1 of the Introduction to Devout Life, which is you and I can attempt growth in natural virtue, prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude. But he highlights that when we are compelled to good actions, when we build earthly good habits, they are rare, slow and heavy because we are relying on our own natural power to do it. But then he goes on to say this, really devout men rise up to God frequently and with a swift and soaring wing because devotion, love of God, is a spiritual activity that God's love works in us. So really our growth in this spiritual life is about running to God that He may let us in on His divine grace. Ponder on that. Until next time, God bless you and keep you always. I'm Marcus Peter. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506. 
or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.